John 1, 1 to 5. You know, <laughs> hindsight, this could have been the first line of the first verse would have been worthy of a sermon. <laughs> but we're going to look at the first five verses, and I think you'll see why. Here's the big idea. Jesus is God. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus came to overcome the darkness. Jesus is God. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus came to overcome the darkness. I don't read Time Magazine much. You know, around Easter time, if you're at the grocery store, there'll typically be a, a Time Magazine article on the resurrection. Have you noticed that? I'm always interested to see what the world is saying about the empty tomb. I know what the Bible says, but I'm always curious to know the questions that the world is posing. Well, Time Magazine once asked, and maybe you recall uh, this particular Time Magazine, who is Jesus? And it was on the cover. Who is Jesus? That's a big question. I would say that's the most important question. And the article asked numerous questions, and here are some of the questions that were posed in this article. How is Jesus to be understood? Did he stride out of the wilderness 2,000 years ago to preach a, a gentle message of peace and brotherhood? Or did he perhaps advocate some form of revolution? When did he realize his mission would end with death upon a cross? Did he view himself as the promised Messiah? Did he understand himself to be both God and man? Now, if you're honest, you would admit that you have asked similar questions about Jesus. Thankfully, however, we don't have to go to Time Magazine for the answers. We go where? We go to the Bible. Amen. We go to Scripture. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have studied John. John, like all the Gospels, begins with the prologue. Now, what's a prologue? The first 18 verses of John's Gospel, John 1, 1 to 18, make up what's called the prologue. The prologue in any type of writing, what does it do? It's an introduction preparing us, the reader, for what's to come. It includes, the prologue includes major themes and sets the tone for the rest of the book. So what do we learn in the prologue of John's gospel? We learn that Jesus is God. We learn that Jesus is all-powerful. And we learn that Jesus came to overcome the darkness. What is John's gospel about? What does it teach us? teaches us that Jesus is God, that Jesus is all-powerful, and that Jesus came to overcome the darkness. This Jesus, who is God and all-powerful, will be victorious, and that is what John's gospel is all about. What do we learn in the first five verses of John's gospel regarding Jesus? And I see three things. Three things. Number one, his identity. His identity, who he is. Who is this Jesus? Verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. One could argue that John 1 is a commentary on Genesis 1. Does John 1 sound familiar, this in the beginning language? Where does that come from? Is that unique to John? No. It looks back to Genesis 1. Both passages, both Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, begin with the phrase, Barashith, if you speak Hebrew, or Enarche, 
if you're Greek. But both mean in the beginning. I want to put these two passages side by side. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We're familiar with that. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Whoa. So the language of John 1.1 comes from Genesis 1. John wants us to look back to the beginning, namely to creation. In Genesis 1.1, so I'm going to spend some time talking about Genesis 1.1. And I'll spend a lot of time talking about Genesis today, because that's the background. In Genesis 1.1, we learn that in the beginning there was God. Now, that does not mean that God had a beginning. Rather, it means that before there was anything else, there was God. And God has always been. All life comes from Him. He is the Creator. By referencing Genesis 1 and then inserting the word where you would expect God, John is teaching us something extremely important about Jesus. He is, he's God. You got it. He's God. In the beginning, there was God. But this God was a community of persons, a triune God. And we see this early on in Genesis in two places. So Genesis 1-2. It's not subtle, by the way. Listen. The earth was tohu vabohu, that's the Hebrew, was formless and without void. Isn't that funny, tohu vabohu? You didn't think you'd hear that today, but you did. The earth was formless and without void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and here it is, and the Spirit of God. Who? The Spirit. There's the Spirit. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What's that? Who's that? And then Genesis 1.26 then God said, you ready for it? Let us, wait, 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 us. Who's he talking about? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Here we have the divine plural with us and our. As you can see, Genesis 1 is triune in shape, meaning it reveals the triune God. God is one. Amen? There's one God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Barashith bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Not gods, but God. In the beginning, God. God is one. And yet, this one God is a plurality of persons. Let's go back to John 1. John is the most triune of all the Gospels. I'm sorry if your head is hurting right now, but that tends to happen when you talk about the Trinity. And that's how John begins. So what are we going to talk about this morning? We're going to talk about the Trinity. Now, I love Greek. I read Greek. I'm not Greek. I'm a geek, but I like Greek. The Greek of John 1, the Greek of John 1 helps us to see that John is distinguishing between two persons in the Godhead. First, there's the Word, who stands for the Son. And next, we have God, who stands for the Good, the Father. And although they are one God, they are different persons. There is unity and diversity in the Trinity. That's the point of John 1.1. 1, 1. So I want to quickly walk through the logic of John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me read you the Greek because I'm going to come back to it. Okay? Anybody can do this, by the way. In Arche in Holy Ghost, 
kai holagos im proston theun ke theos in holagos. And I'm going to come back to that last part. Let me just walk through this. First, in the beginning was the, was the Word. So here's the point that John is making. As God was in the beginning, so was the Word. You got it? As God was in the beginning, so was the, the Word. We're talking about his identity. Don't forget that. That's point one, who he is. Second, oh, this is so good. And the Word was with God. <laughs> he was with God. Here we see the unity between the Word and God. They are together. Isn't that incredible? They're together. And not just together like two random strangers at a bus stop, but together like the closest of friends. They were together relationally. Not only does the preposition with, right, he was with God, the word was with God, so not only does that preposition, the word with, establish a deep and personal relationship between the word and God, the Father, but it draws a distinction between the two. Third, and the word was, say it, was God. Whoa, the word was God. There it is. There's the question we're answering. Who is he? Who is he? Who is Jesus? He's, he's God. Now, this may be surprising, and yet it's emphatic. It's clear. Now, what's interesting, and let me just follow me here. This is tough. I think it'll make sense. I hope it does. What's interesting is the fact that in the original Greek, God, Theos, is fronted. It appears at the beginning of the sentence. And yet it's missing the article. What's the article? Articles of the word, the. Whereas word has the article, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, why, why is that? Why is that the case in the original Greek? Here's what John's doing. Now, catch this. By fronting God, God comes at the beginning of the sentence. John is showing us that what God is, the word is. Everybody say, what God is? The word is. Okay. They share the same quality or essence. Now, the lack of the article, right? So word, the word, has the article, but God does not. It's not the God, it's just God. The lack of the article shows us, it allows us to distinguish between God and the word as different persons. John is talking about the Father and the, and the Son, and he is distinguishing between the two persons. Daniel Wallace writes, the word order tells us that Jesus Christ has all the divine attributes that the Father has. Lack of the article tells us that Jesus Christ is not the Father. Furthermore, John, in quoting from Genesis 1, is purposefully linking together two periods of salvation history. When you think of Genesis, what big event do you think about? Say it again. Creation, right? When you think of the Gospels, hopefully you're thinking about the new creation, right? The new creation. So the point is this. John, in quoting from Genesis 1, is linking together purposefully these two periods in salvation history, the first creation, or simply creation, and the new creation. What John wants us to see is this, friends, that just as the Word, Jesus, right, the Son of God, was active during the first creation, so too is he active during the new creation. 
As the Father, Son, and Spirit were active during the first creation, so too the Father, Son, and Spirit are active during the the new creation. This is a major theme in John's gospel established at the outset. Now, we've established where John 1-1 comes from. Where does it come from? What book in the Bible? What chapter? 1, okay. But still, what about the title Word? Where does that come from? It's used four times in John's gospel of Jesus, three times in John 1-1, and then once in verse 14. So it's a prevalent title used of Jesus, but where does it come from? What does it mean that he's the Word, and where does that come from? Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean that he's the Word? He's called a lot of things in John's gospel. He's called the light of the world. He's called the good shepherd. He's called the bread of life. He's called the way, the truth, and the life. But what does it mean that he's the Word? Let me explain. The obvious context is the same book we've been looking at at the beginning, Genesis. What we see in Genesis 1 is that God creates by his what? By his Word. His authoritative Word. Therefore, God's Word is life-giving. It's authoritative. When he speaks, things happen. Amen? When God speaks in Genesis 1, things happen. What he commands literally comes to fruition. Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light. Hold. Hold. No. What does the text say next? And there was light. God said, let there be light, and there was. So what he said came to fruition. When he commands something, it happens. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By his word the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. All right, so the word, according to Genesis 1, is the means by which God brings life into the world. Amen? Now let's go to Genesis 15. Oh, you thought it was just that. You thought, okay, well, look at Genesis 1 and we're done. Oh, there's more to it, that he's the word. Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, the Lord reveals himself and relates to his people by his word. He reveals himself and he relates to people by his what? By his word. So his word is revelatory and relational. Everybody say it's revelatory. Okay, I want you to get that. And it's relational. Okay. Genesis 15.1 reads, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The text could have said God came to Abraham or Abram in a vision, but it says the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The word came to him. The word came to him. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So you're thinking, okay, so the word is life-giving and authoritative. It's revelatory, it reveals God, and it's relational. God relates to his people by his word. Surely that's it, Chris. Guess what? We're not done. There's more. In Isaiah 55.11, we see, listen, this is so good, we see that God's word effects rescue. It effects deliverance. It reads, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but my word, that's what he's talking about, shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Wow. So according to the Old Testament, God's word is 
life-giving, his word reveals, his word relates, and his word delivers. Hmm. Who else is life-giving, relational, revelatory? Who else delivers? Who is it? Jesus. Because God's word creates, reveals, and delivers, it makes sense that John would use this specific title to describe who? Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of all things, the one who came to reveal God and deliver God's people. And all God's people said, amen. You know, John, more than any other book, uses Old Testament language and imagery to describe Jesus. So the bread of life. In John 6, he's going to connect that to manna. As the manna came down, so Jesus came down. He's the good shepherd. He's the light. That's Old Testament language that John is using titles from the Old Testament to help us understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. So in using the title, the word, John is showing us who Jesus is, his identity. He's God. Everybody say, he's God. Man, if that doesn't humble you, you might be dead. By using that title, he's showing us who Jesus is. He's God and what he's like, which brings us to our next point, number two. So the first thing we looked at, his identity, who he is. Number two, his authority, what he's like, his authority. Verse three, all things were made through him. Listen, not some things not the majority of things, not 99.9999% of things, but all things were made through him. And without him, without him was not anything made that was made. Now, verse 3 further supports the claim established in verses 1 and 2, namely that Jesus, the word is, he's God. He's God. John Calvin wrote, Having declared, now this is in context, John Calvin, this is his commentary on this verse. He writes, having declared that the word is God and proclaimed his divine essence, he goes on to prove his identity from his works. What work especially proves that Jesus is God? What sets God apart from everything else? We are the creation and he is the? He's the creator. Amen? Again, the background for verse 3 is Genesis 1. What do we see God doing in the very beginning? What's he doing? In the beginning, God, the first verb, he created. He created. How is God revealed in Genesis 1? What, what prerogative separates God from everything else? He is the creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does John reveal to us about Jesus in the beginning of his gospel? John, right out the gate, okay, this is really interesting, right out the gate, reveals to us that Jesus is the, he's the creator, he's God. Now, creation, this is just kind of a, a bonus this morning, creation as revealed in Genesis 1 is a triune project. You got that? I would say salvation. 
New creation is a triune project. But if you go back to Genesis 1, you see that creation is a triune project. Number one, in Genesis 1-2, we have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, bringing order to disorder, bringing form to that which was formless. Okay? Number two, we have God the Father speaking, decreeing that creation come into being. And number three, we have creation coming into being through the spoken word of God, this creating, life-giving word. You know, John 1 is not the only place in the New Testament that connects Jesus' deity, the fact that he's God, to his work of creation. Let's go to Colossians 1, 15 to 17. So again, John 1, in John, John 1, John connects Jesus' deity, the fact that he's God, to his act of what? What's he doing? Creating, right? John's not the only one to do that. Paul does it for us in Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Listen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things, everybody say all, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And in case you weren't listening, all things, he says it again, for emphasis, all things were created through him and for him. And this is it. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Oh, my word. Exactly. See what I did there? <laughs> Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Listen. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom... He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds, oh, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John makes a staggering claim about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 3. It's simply this, that everything that exists owes its existence, its being, to Jesus. Let me tell you about my interaction with Jehovah's Witnesses. Now listen, raise your hand if you've spoken with the JW. They've come to your door. And I sing the song, come and knock on my door, I'll be waiting for you. Jehovah's Witnesses, I can't promise that I won't do that again, Jehovah's Witnesses are near and dear to my heart because my older sister is a Jehovah's Witness. My older sister, Sarah, you can pray for her. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about what JWs believe, studying what they believe, so that I can better interact with them. Now, my, my definition of this distinguishing doctrine of the JWs is going to come off, across as very sophomoric, but again, uh, this is not a lecture, this is a sermon. Okay, So this is what... Jehovah's Witnesses believe what makes them distinct from Christians. JWs, and I'll use that for short, Jehovah's Witnesses argue that Jesus is not God, but rather that he was created by God. Essentially this, guys, if you know church history, the Jehovah's Witness belief system is really a resurgence of the 4th century heresy Arianism. Arius, his, his motto was, there was a time when Jesus was not, meaning he came into existence, he was created, and then in comes Athanasius. We'll save that for another time. 
The text, what text? The Bible clearly recognizes Jesus as being fully God. Verse 3, if you, if you were listening to John chapter 1, verse 3, it clearly discounts the JW's claim. And here it is. Let me just let me make this argument, okay? All things. What things? All things were made through him. That's the first part. And then again to emphasize, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Here's the point. Here's the argument. Whatever has been made has been made through who? Jesus. Therefore, Jesus could not have been what? He couldn't have been made. Come on. Everything that falls under the category of having been made owes its existence to who? Jesus. Therefore, Jesus could not have been made. Why? Because he's the creator of everything or all things. Father, save Sarah. Amen. What does this teach us about Jesus, namely what he's like? No, come on. He's the creator. Is that significant? Absolutely. I don't know who said that, but amen. Absolutely. What does the fact that Jesus is the creator of all things teach us about himself? Let's go back. Let's go back. I read two passages from the New Testament. I said, not only John, but other New Testament books make the correlation between Jesus being God and his act of creation. I quoted Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Let's go back to those verses really quick. Now listen. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created. We got it. In heaven and on earth. Everything. Yes. Visible and invisible. We got it, Paul. It's so good though, right? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. But we're not going to stop there. Verse 17. And he, who's he? Jesus. He is before all things and in him. All things hold together. Whoa! Whoa! If you're not humbled, you're dead. He holds everything together. Keep going. Hebrews 1, verse 2. In verse 2, we learn that Jesus upholds, not a small thing, the universe by the word of his power. Again, he is creator, he is sovereign, he is in control, he is all-powerful, he is Lord. John is clearly painting a picture for us of the lordship of Christ. This Jesus, the word, the creator, is Lord. He's Lord. Now, in Colin Hansen's recent biography on the late Timothy Keller, he talks about when Tim Keller was at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. And he got saved through InterVarsity Ministry. And he was at a conference in Colorado. And one of the speakers there that had a lasting impact on him was Barbara Boyd. Anybody heard of Barbara Boyd? Kind of like a Nancy Guthrie, right? Or a Jen Wilkin, just a Bible teacher. Not a pastor. A Bible teacher teaching women. But Keller heard her, and this is what he recalls. Listen to this. This is so good. She said, this is Barbara Boyd, BB. She said, if you want to invite me into your home, and you say, come in, Barbara, stay out, Boyd, 
I wouldn't know what to do because I'm Barbara Boyd. How ludicrous is that? Come in, Chris. Stay out, Taylor. What? (laughs) In fact, she says, I couldn't even say this half is Barbara and this half is Boyd, so I'll just bring this half in because I'm all Barbara and I'm all Boyd. I'm both, she said. So you either get me all or you get neither of me. Now follow her here. Then she turned around and said, If you say, I would like the loving Jesus, I would like the helping Jesus, I would like the Jesus I can ask to help me through the hard times, but I don't want the holy Jesus. I don't want the all-powerful Jesus. I don't want the Jesus who is great. Then you get no Jesus at all. She said, think about this for a minute. Now pay attention here. The longest quote I've ever had in a sermon. I don't care, it's worth it. Barbara Boyd said this. This is how she ended. She said, think about this for a minute. If the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, if the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, what? Do you realize, listen to this, this is incredible. The distance from the earth to the nearest star will be a stack of papers 70 feet high. Just the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our little galaxy is just a speck of the universe. She goes on to say, the Bible says in Hebrews 1, Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. And she ended here. She said, Jesus Christ holds the universe together with his pinky. Then she looked, smiled, and said, do you ask somebody like that into your life to be your assistant? What do we learn about Jesus in our passage? He is creator. He is all-powerful. He is Lord. How should we respond to Jesus, friends? How? How? We should bow the knee. We should follow him. We should adore him. We should give him our very lives. We should submit to his word. We should live for his glory. We should proclaim his good news. We should help others in the church follow him. We should point our children to him. We should prepare our spouses for him. And we should seek to become more like him. Why? Because he's worthy. Amen? He's worthy. The last thing is this. What did the Lord come to do? What did he come to do? Number three, his mission. We've looked at his identity. He's God. We've talked about what he's like. He has all authority. He's Lord. Why did he come? What's his mission? We're going to end here. What did he come to do? Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What did the Word, this all-powerful, sovereign God, come to do? According to our passage, he came to give what? Life. He came to reveal God. He came to make a way to God. He came to overcome the darkness. Now, don't, listen, give me six more minutes, okay? I don't care if you're tired. 
This is God's word. I'll never apologize for that. Don't miss this last part, please. It's been a long Sunday. We've baptized, praise God, but don't miss this. What did he come to do? His mission. Just, you know, if you see your neighbor kind of nodding off, just one day I'm going to pull a George Whitfield. Somebody fell asleep when he was preaching. He jumped down and got in front of him. How dare you fall asleep when the word of God is being proclaimed? And I promise you that man never fell asleep again. <laughs> First, Jesus came to give life. He is the source of life, both physical life, which we just saw established. He's the creator, but he's also the source of what? Spiritual life. This is further emphasized in the next line where we read, and the life was the light of men. Now, darkness. Everybody say darkness. We don't like darkness. We don't long for darkness. Do we? Of course not. Kids are afraid of the dark. We understand the imagery. We understand that it's used negatively. Well, so it was in the Old Testament. Darkness is used in the Old Testament to describe spiritual darkness, life without God. It describes a world separate from God, a world that is spiritually blind, sinful, opposed to God, and governed by Satan. Listen to Isaiah 59, 9 and 10. Therefore, justice is far from us. Listen to this. This, listen, this is so good, so please don't miss this. I, listen, Isaiah 59, we're going to see darkness. But then in Isaiah 60, what are we going to see? What's going to break in? The light. So don't miss Isaiah 59. Listen. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind. We can't see where we're going. That is humanity's condition apart from the Lord. It's true. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon. So during the brightest part of the day, they stumble. As in the twilight, among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Whoa, that is heavy. It's dark. Now, according to John, Jesus is the light that shines in the in the darkness. Again, this language has its moorings in the Old Testament in Isaiah 60. So the next chapter, Isaiah 60. Isaiah 59, 9 and 10, darkness. Isaiah 60, 1 to 3, light. Arise, shine, for your light has come. I mean, what, God, what are you going to do about our dead and dark state? We're groping like blind men. We're falling over. <laughs> the answer is in the next chapter. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. As the light, Jesus has come to reveal God, to show us the way to God, and more than that, to make the way to God. In fact, in John 14, 6, he is the way to God. What love! What grace that Jesus came as the light to a world of darkness, a world opposed to God and in league with Satan. Now, for whom did this light come? According to John, 
And according to Isaiah 60, verse 3, he came as the light of men, meaning all humanity. He came for the nations. Amen? He came for the nations. Finally, in climactic fashion, we learn that the darkness has not overcome the what? It's not overcome the light. The darkness, this should be so encouraging to you, church, the darkness will not be victorious. The light will be victorious. Clearly, John has in mind Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. Amen? The light, Jesus, will accomplish his work of salvation, and this work will not be thwarted. The light is the light of life, the light that brings life where death formerly reigned. Now, this story, listen, this story, John's gospel is all about the light's victory. John, in these opening verses, is preparing us for what his gospel is all about. But get ready, this story will surprise and even shock you. For victory comes about in a very unexpected and unprecedented way. This story, John's gospel, is all about victory through what? Victory through death. The light enters the darkness. Who's the light? Christ. The light enters the darkness. And the darkness, I mean, at the end of our story, we're going to get there, but the, the darkness appears victorious. But, listen, the final phrase of verse 5 is brought to fruition with the climax of John's gospel, the resurrection of Jesus. The light is one Spoiler alert, truth reigns, life is provided, and Jesus, the Word, the author of life, is the source of life and the victor over death and darkness. You know, what's interesting, I want to mention this, what's interesting is that the word translated as overcome, katalambano in Greek, can also mean understood. Now pay attention here. The end of verse 5 of John 1 could read, and the darkness has not understood it, understood the light. Those who belong to the darkness do not naturally grasp the light. The world is contra Jesus, and yet Jesus died for the, for the world. The world, listen, the world, spiritually blind as it is, will not embrace the light until the light, Jesus, causes those bound by darkness to be spiritually born again. John, in the opening verses of his gospel, calls his readers to trust in Jesus by revealing his identity, his authority, and his mission. These taken together reveal his matchless worth. John purposefully begins his gospel with creation language from where? Genesis 1 to show that now, in Christ, the time of new creation has come. That's the point of our passage. A point that is further driven home in John chapter 3, we find that Jesus is the author, the giver of new birth or new creation. Trust in Jesus, amen? Trust in Jesus, the light for life. Because apart from Jesus, you'll remain in the darkness for how long? forever. Let me quickly review. Who is Jesus? Number one, he is? He's God. What is Jesus like? Number two, 
He is the sovereign, all-powerful Lord as seen in His work of creation. And number three, what did Jesus come to do? He came to give life. He came to reveal God. He came to make the way to God and to overcome the what? The darkness. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? Is he your Lord? Are you living for him? Begin today. Begin today. You know, in most stories, I love reading books. In most stories, the true identity of the hero is reserved for the end of the story. It's that aha moment. Whoa, it's him! The mask is taken off. No way! You're the guy! And yet in our story, the most important story, the identity of Jesus is revealed at the beginning of John's gospel. And a case for his identity is made and supported throughout John's gospel. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. How have you responded? How will you respond? Trust in him today for forgiveness and a forever relationship with God. Listen. This passage, okay, this passage is meant to both humble and inspire worship. Are you humbled and are you committed to worshiping Jesus, the Lord as King? Let's do it together, amen? Let me pray. Father, we are in awe of your Son revealed in your word. I pray that our response to this incredible passage would be awe, humility, and worship for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.